0: Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell a version of the calling of the first disciples. Matthew and Mark's accounts are nearly identical. This is how Matthew tells the story in chapter four. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. I have struggled with these shorter versions. I know that I should be able to risk everything and follow Jesus. And that simple telling flattens a lot and leaves me with a lot of questions. By contrast, Luke's account provides a fuller context for the calling of the disciples and reveals Jesus in fresh and surprising ways. Jesus has been making a name for himself in the region of Galilee. In the previous chapter of Luke, we learned that Jesus has been preaching in the synagogue, casting out demons, healing the sick, including Simon's mother-in-law. It's no wonder that crowds are seeking him out. At the beginning of chapter five, Simon and his co-laborers have returned from fishing unsuccessfully. They had to be worn out and frustrated and eager to just return to their homes. However, in that moment, Jesus enlists Simon's help. Simon agrees to put his his boat back out in the water, and Jesus teaches the crowd from the boat. It's interesting that Luke doesn't include Jesus's teaching here. The emphasis is on Jesus, Jesus and his surprising interaction with Simon. The calling of Simon arises out of his relationship with Jesus, and it begins with an invitation to a small act of trust. It would have been easy for Simon to refuse Jesus's request and tell him, go talk to the owner of that other boat, I'm off the clock, but he doesn't. Maybe because of Jesus's growing reputation, or maybe because Jesus recently healed his mother-in-law, So it makes me wonder how often God comes to us with small invitations like this. You might have heard Christine tell a story about when she was on her way to work and she sensed a prompting from God to speak with an older woman who was walking in front of her. In her haste to get to work, she brushed it off, but later reflected that it had been an invitation from God that she had ignored. Fast forward a week or two, and the same woman was there in front of her on her way to work, and that same invitation came. This time, Christine heeded it, and as she talked with this woman, the woman poured out her sorrow at having lost her son, and Christine was able to pray for her as i was preparing for today i also kept thinking about a number of times at the end of high school and in college when i sensed god prompting me to come out to friends and friends from church it had become really burdensome to live with a secret of being gay and i was too afraid to trust god to actually say those words to friends the invitation didn't make sense when it just result in my rejection and shame so i retreated into silence And my loneliness increased now i wonder what might god have done if i had responded in faith and trust instead when god presents us with an invitation to risk it creates the opportunity for our trust to grow allows us to more fully relax into god's trustworthiness It's so easy to miss, ignore, and even refuse these small invitations to trust. It makes me think about Jesus's words in a parable later in Luke when he says, whoever is faithful in very very little is also faithful in much. If we wanna be trustworthy with big things, we have to be trustworthy with the small ones. I don't share this to heap a burden on you. The point is not to remember all the ways that we have failed to heed God, to do what's right, though God would be justified to remind us of these things. Rather, when God invites us to trust or to risk something, it's only ever because God wishes to draw us out of ourselves so that we might live less encumbered, more freely. Trust usually starts small, as in most of our relationships, God is patient with our limitations, but unlike our human relationships, where we often fail one another, God's trustworthiness is endless. After preaching to the crowd, Jesus asks Simon to put out into the deep water. Simon says, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing Yet if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Here's another point where Simon could have told Jesus, tapping out, it's been a long day and I need to rest. But something about Jesus compels Simon to consent to go back out to the deep water. The word for deep in Greek has a literal meaning, so the water extends a long way down, but also a figurative and metaphorical meaning. that that the water is unfathomable, risky, even chaotic. In other words, when Jesus says, put out into the deep, he's raising the stakes of Simon's trust. It's like asking, will you trust me beyond what you can control, where your safety and success depend on me? Simon consents again. He and the others put their nets down into the deep water and they catch enough fish to fill two boats, almost to the point of sinking them. Take a moment to picture that. The next surprising detail comes in the form of Simon's response to this miraculous catch of fish. I would expect Simon to celebrate. A failed work shift was transformed into the greatest catch of fish he would ever see. Surely this would have had to be a huge blessing to Simon and to his partners. But Simon is overcome with worthlessness. He falls to Jesus' knees and says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. That response is similar to Isaiah's from the Old Testament reading we heard. When he encounters God's presence, he proclaims, woe is me, I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is, in fact, a pattern in scripture when God appears to people. God's otherness and entire goodness cause people to perceive their limitations and sinfulness by comparison. There's a subtle shift in how Simon addresses Jesus in the passage. When Jesus prompts Simon to go out into the deep, Simon calls him master or teacher. Here, after the catch of fish, he says, "'Go away from me, Lord, The miracle reveals to Simon that Jesus is not simply a good rabbi, a good teacher. He is God. Jesus demonstrates power over the sea because he was present when it was created. And that means he's Simon's maker as well. Can Simon trust Jesus with his limitations, his sin and his shame? Jesus responds by saying, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Jesus doesn't go away like Simon Simon pleads. He remains with Simon in the deep until he brings the abundant catch of fish to land. He remains with Simon throughout his ministry of catching people, even when he denies him. What a consolation that God invites us, that when God invites us out into the deep, God accompanies us and helps to quiet our fears the whole way. There's another subtle change in language in verse eight that I wanna highlight. Another surprise, if you will. We're introduced to Simon in chapter four, In chapter 6, we learn that Jesus gives him a new name, Peter. After that, Luke only refers to him as Peter. But in verse 8 of chapter 5, when he falls uh, down saying, go away from me, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinful man, Luke uses the name Simon Peter. It appears only one time in this entire book you probably know that the name Peter means rock. The Peter that we meet in the Gospels is not very rock-like, however. (laughs) We see him acting impetuously, fearfully, and with self-interest. At one point, Jesus calls him, you of little faith. And yet, Peter goes on to be one of the most important leaders in the early church, trusting Jesus to the point of being executed by Emperor Nero. These thousands of years later, this church that we're worshiping in is named for him. I think Luke provides this glimmer in verse 8 to make us zoom out and remember the scope of Peter's life. A life of trusting Jesus, however imperfectly, transforms Simon into Peter, impetuousness and fear into rootedness and weightiness. We have a false self that wants to exist apart from God and God's love. It's the part of us that is least trusting, most afraid, most reactive, most selfish, and most self-protecting. It's the orphaned self. When I got to preach to you in December, I shared a bit about that version of myself. My false self It's usually a mystery to me. It wants to avoid scrutiny and conflict. It ignores difficult things. It appeases other people. I fail to speak up when I should. And sometimes I bury my disagreement and frustration until I can't bear it anymore and then I lash out. It's ugly. Our true selves, on the other hand, are rooted and assured of their belovedness. So they are drawn out more and more as we're in relationship with God, as our trust develops. Peter's life demonstrates this, how a life of trusting Jesus can make us more fully alive, more fully ourselves. there's a final surprise in Luke's call narrative for Peter. Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. As I read some commentaries about this passage, they pointed out that Luke doesn't use the metaphor of fishing for people that Matthew and Mark do. Instead, he just uses the verb to catch. More precisely, it's a verb that means to catch alive. Somehow the catching that Jesus envisions leads to life. What would catching alive mean, especially since our image of catching fish leads to their death? So as I meditated on this question, two connections surfaced for me. First, I'm reminded of the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, also written by Luke. The disciples were gathered together when the Holy Spirit comes on them and they begin speaking in many languages. Peter preaches to the crowd, explaining how Jesus' death and resurrection rescues people from their sin and false selves. Luke writes, so people are gathered. um, Luke writes, so those uh, who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added. Here, people are gathered, they experience life through the telling of the gospel and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then they disperse to live in freedom. That second connection uh, is a similar image of community and freedom. In gathered worship, we assemble in this building in Chelsea or across the internet through YouTube. We receive a deposit of life Through the word of god and the sacrament of the eucharist and then we're sent to live in freedom led by the holy spirit until we are gathered again this pattern of catching people to make them more fully alive and then releasing them to live in freedom continues to this day jesus comes that we might have life and have it abundantly it's easy to read the story in a way that centers ourselves we can map ourselves onto the person of Simon and focus on Simon's response to Jesus, rather than seeking to understand and know the person who inspires the disciples to leave everything. It's sort of like when I spend a Zoom meeting, looking at my own little window (laughs) and also missing the point of the meeting and usually judging myself harshly. Instead, as the author of Hebrews writes, let us look to Jesus, the author and and perfecter of our faith. So who is Jesus revealed to be in this story from Luke's gospel? Jesus invites us into small actions of trust that arise from our relationship to him and allow that relationship to deepen. Sometimes he invites us to risky action, accompanying us the whole way in all of these invitations big and small he's calling us into our true selves that we might live abundantly and this is a work done in the community of people that he gathers redeems and empowers with the gift of the holy spirit and then sends out to live lives of love sometimes i'm tempted to think that i want to see the scope of my life Wouldn't it be easier to trust God if I saw where all of this was going? The Simon that we read about today doesn't understand the life of Peter. We, like Simon, just get the next invitation to trust and the assurance that he who began a good work among us will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. So as I close out here, I want you to consider one of the following questions. I want you to let the question choose you. I'll read them twice. I'll pause for a couple of seconds and give you some space to reflect. So here they are. Is Jesus inviting you to trust him in a particular way, big or small? If you are in the deep, how is Jesus accompanying you? Or do you have a story to share of Jesus's trustworthiness? One more time. Is Jesus inviting you to trust him in a particular way, big or small? If you're in the deep, how is Jesus accompanying you? Do you have a story to share of Jesus's trustworthiness?